Welcome to Meekum Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. It's the show geared toward keeping you up to speed with the latest auto news, event coverage, and expert industry insight. Now, here are your hosts, Matt Avery and John Craman. Hey, and welcome to another On The Move. John, today we've got a Shelby-focused show. In segment two, you and I had a chance to sit down with Vince LaViolette. He is the current VP of Operations for Shelby American. We have a great conversation with him about what all his role entails. And the Shelby theme continues because later on, we're going to talk about a very special classic Shelby crossing the block at Meekum's Monterey Daytime Auction. So before we get to it, though, let's talk about all of the recent excitement at Meekum Harrisburg. John, it had been three years since we had returned to that area, and boy, were they glad to see us. We came, we saw, <laughs> and we conquered. I know that's stereotypical, but boy, did that work. You know, Matt, the excitement leading up to Meekum Harrisburg was really probably close to an all-time high at Meekum. A couple of reasons for that. Number one is just the overall appreciation and excitement for the folks there in central PA that just absolutely come out in droves and are very excited to have us there. And then the fact that we hadn't been there since 2019, both of those, we, we were expecting a good auction and we're expecting big crowds, but anything that we would have thought of from the results to the top sellers, some of the pricing record crowds, everything was totally unexpected, but definitely appreciated. What was your arriving on site? What was your thought about even from day one? How was it unfolding in your eyes? Yeah, you know, I went into the auction with the big question of my mind being, are we going to see any signs of this red hot market cooling off? Uh, and clearly the answer is no with what you you touched on, the, the record attendance, the record sales, just the overall and, and tangible high levels of excitement. Uh, just uh, there's a big buzz and there's still a big focus on car collecting. And no clearer is that really seen than when you start looking into some of the details and especially when you look over the, the total dollar sales. Well, yeah, if you just look at the raw data, it is very, very impressive. Um Hammer price, $36 million by adding up um, road art, other items that were sold at over $40 million, Matt. And that compares to the record that we set back in 2019 of $27 million. That's a 30% increase over the previous record. Uh, 83% sell rate, also very impressive. Uh, had over a thousand cars consigned over four days. We did 18 hours of television coverage on Motor Trend that was incredible. It was just a win, win, win situation for all of us uh, involved with it from the Meekum staffers that worked hard from early in the morning until late into the evening, getting everything squared away. And But you know what? We sit back and we look at the results and it just makes everybody proud and just... Uh, so grateful for the support that we get from the folks in that region. And when we begin to think that it's really the heart and soul of Central PA, it goes way beyond that. Uh, If you draw a four-hour driving radius of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, we represent about 25% of the entire country's population. So we had people from literally all over the region of that area that were just there. They were there to spectate, and they were there to buy, and they were there to sell. Now that all of that is said... Our top 10 sellers, Matt, was an absolute shocker. <laughs> well said. Now, John, uh, six of those on the top 10 list were, were Corvettes. 
any surprise from that from that data <laughs> or or did you kind of see this coming well, we know that the Corvette market across all generations continues to be strong, but I'm going to pick out a couple of them here that were just absolute shockers. Uh, our number four top seller, just kind of picking it out of order, but randomly as we're talking about Corvettes, our number four top seller was a 53 Corvette. It was sequence number 202 out of only 300 built, of course, in that debut year. It sold for a whopping 407 thousand dollars that is an incredible number and then another shocker high seller matt was lot number s103 point was a 58 corvette gorgeous bloomington gold certified ncrs top flight reserve came off i think somewhere in the hundred and sixty thousand dollar range and it sold for two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars and it was not a factory fuel-injected car. Any Corvette surprises on your radar screen? <laughs> Just the fact that there's not a single C8 on the list. Uh, these are all from the previous seven generations of the model, going back to the, the first year for the Corvette, that 53 Roadster you mentioned. And, you know, John, to me, that just really speaks to how passionate collectors and enthusiasts are for not just the latest Corvette, but, you know, all the years for the model. So really, really need to see that. Now, let's talk about I want to change gears a little bit to talk about I think the most shocking high seller of the auction that was the third place high seller it was a 1977 Pontiac Trans Am special edition showing just 14 miles on the odometer but John this thing sold for $440,000 man it was incredible to see that level of excitement for this car what was your impression when this vehicle crossed the block so incredibly blown away by the results of that car here's how the actual sale unfolded on site matt high expectations for this car we've talked about it on the podcast um reserve came off at two hundred thousand dollars by the way which was very strong money uh, certainly it met the seller's uh, expectations, but the fact that the eventual sale price was $440,000 led during the television coverage, led Scott and I towards the end where my final words on the subject was literally no words. <laughs> That's how we ended. That's how we ended that segment. Uh, certainly the car obviously representing the high mark 77 is the it year, the smoking, the bandit inspired uh, uh, notoriety of these cars has just been exploding. Uh, a whole new generation has just decided that this is maybe the number one it car from the 1970s, especially in an American car. And the fact it had 14 original miles on it, N not particularly well equipped. It had the base 400, not the optional TA 6.6. It was an automatic, not the typically more desirable four speed. It had roll up windows, no power windows, but a 14 mile, perhaps the lowest mileage, 77, what we refer to as a band edition Trans Am on the planet at $440,000. Still, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about uh, American muscle and sports cars being on the top 10, but coming in first and second were a pair of European exotics. You know, we, we see a wide diversity of vehicles crossing the block. Coming in second, I'll start there, was a 1985 Lamborghini Countach LP5000S. That sold for $467,500. And then coming in first, John, a, a late model exotic, a 2021 Mercedes-Benz AMG GT Black Series, one of the very 
very desirable, uh, desirable track ready Grand Tours um, with 46 miles on the odometer. We talk about low mileage. And that certainly resonated with enthusiasts, selling for $473,000. Yeah, one of only 1,700 built. It was absolutely as new condition. And in the Mercedes-Benz world, you say Black Series. That is literally the top of the food chain. The absolute fastest, highest quality, hand-built, prestigious, very difficult to get, by the way, and obviously paid off well. You wouldn't maybe think that Harrisburg would be a venue that would attract our number one and two sellers, both European cars, but it really shows you, I think, the strategy of conversations that I had with uh, Frank Meekham, Meekham's VP of consignments, going back maybe 10, 12 years ago, where he said, Johnny said, I really want to put European exotics, both vintage and contemporary, on our radar screen, and man, that's paid off. And this is the perfect example of that. Absolutely. Now, speaking of that, John, one of the Mecham auctions where there are plenty of European exotics is the next Mecham auction. That is Mecham Monterey, the daytime auction that will be taking place August 18th through the 20th at the Hyatt Regency Monterey Hotel and Spa, the Del Monte Golf Course. What a historic uh, time of year. This is Monterey Car Week, just a, a hotbed of celebration of motoring and Mecham has been part of it now now John I think one of the things that's going to jump out to listeners is we refer to as the daytime auction why is that yeah well you know there are so many events going on during Monterey week car shows concours d'elegances new product reveals new car shows vintage car shows Mecham auctions historic racing the list goes on and on so the strategy was was to pick three days, run it during the daytime, because many of these events, by the way, are in the late afternoons into the evening, and let people pick and choose and make it convenient for folks to be able to attend as many events as possible. And that's, uh, that was the strategy literally right from day one, uh, and it has carried on to be really a very successful formula Keep in mind, our Monterey auction in car count is the smallest of all of our auctions, but it also has the highest per car average of any Mecham auction. So it really is kind of Mecham's version of a boutique auction uh, at what is considered to be maybe, if not the most prestigious, but one of the world's most prestigious automotive events. Right. Now, let's talk about the consignments, John. Um, Any standouts that jumped out at you when you looked over what's going to be crossing the block? Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Matt, because this auction, especially when you get to the Friday and Saturday portion of it, almost every entry would be considered a main attraction at almost any other Mecham auction. But, you know, as we've talked about leading up to this uh, and the theme of our podcast today uh, really has to go to one particular car that really is standing head and shoulders, at least in my eyes, above anything else. And that is the 1965 Shelby 427 Competition Cobra, one of only 23 built. This car has it still has its original aluminum body. It's been restored absolutely to perfection. We are looking at millions and millions of dollars as a potential sale price on this car. And noteworthy because it's the only big block Competition Cobra to have won a major racing event over in Europe. And actually, there were GT40s in the race that this, you know, the Shelby, the much crude Shelby 427 actually won. So this car with a lot of racing notoriety, it's been brought back to better than new condition. It's a car that has been owned by 
literally a list of the who's who's of the Shelby collector worlds, all A-listers. And uh, it's actually, it's, it's been repainted back to its original color. It's a slightly lighter shade of the more traditional guardsman blue that we're used to. And I've actually seen this car in person and it really gives the car presence as well. So the racing history, the rarity, the significance, um, the restoration quality, all of that adding up to be what I'm going to call as my favorite, the one that I'm going to be keeping an eye on to see if sort of the magic of the Shelby nameplate continues to grow and grow and grow into future generations. Now, how, how about you? What are you looking at? Well, you know, you talked earlier, John, about the desire of Frank Meekham to really showcase diversity on the Meekham auction block. And I think that's really represented in my pick, which is also hmm. a blue supercar of sorts. It is a 2001 Nissan Skyline oh, R34 yeah. GTR V-Spec 2 in beautiful Bayside blue. Uh, and a couple of the standout features about this car is that it was uh, used and driven by the uh, the actor Paul Walker of Fast and Furious fame as part right. of the promotion for the for now the blockbuster uh, movie series. Uh, but you know, John, these cars, the the Nissan Skyline, man, you know, these have really transcended from uh, being kind of a cult classic to being a mainstream modern icon to the motoring community. Uh, a lot of younger enthusiasts are really seeing these as halo cars. Uh, and I got to see, I, I got to admit, I, I see why there's a magic here. Uh, this particular car, so I mentioned it is a R34. So that is the model series. When you talk about GTRs, uh, a lot of times because they're kind of um, so appreciated by this this niche group of enthusiasts, they actually refer to them by their their series. So the R34 would have been the, the series that ran from 98, 1998 to 2002. Uh, and then with the GTR being, that's one of the more higher performance trims. This is one of 14 cars that was imported and legalized by a importer, Motorex, uh, which the company was uh, actually shut down. But these 14 cars were pardoned by the U.S. government, so they're allowed to be uh, driven, which is part of the mystique of the GTR, John, because up until 2008, they were never sold here in the state. So that's why this car is right-hand drive and uh, lots of power. It's It's got a twin-turbo 2.6 inline uh, six-cylinder engine with a six-speed manual, all-wheel drive, all-wheel all steering, lots of upgrades and uh, performance modifications. And it was also used, in addition to the promotion for the uh, some of the Fast and Furious movies, it was actually used in several BF Goodrich ads. So a very well-known car, uh, owned by or driven by a very well-known uh, modern car enthusiast and celebrity. So really special car and uh, certainly looking forward to seeing it across the block. Yeah, I am too. I've always admired those cars and we're starting to see more and more of those cars. We're not going to see them in huge quantity, but as the JDM, the Japanese domestic market cars continue to gain in popularity, once again, with a new generation of enthusiasts, that car probably might, could very well be considered to be the holy grail of that uh, that emerging trend. Right. Uh, it's also worth noting that another vehicle will be at Mika Monterey that has close ties to Paul Walker, a 1973 Porsche 911 Carrera RS 2.7 that he owned will also be crossing the block. Uh, so two very special uh, vehicles with uh, close ties to the well-known actor and automotive enthusiast. Uh, before we move on, John, from Mika Monterey, anything else listeners should know? Yeah, just want to remind everybody, if you're not going to be out there, you can always go to Meekum.com, enter into your My Meekum account, and watch the Gavel to Gavel streaming action, or join us for television coverage on Motor Trend. We will be there in full force with a special guest, our buddy Steve Matchett. Oh, good. Uh, famed yeah. uh, author, Formula One expert, and all-around cool car guy and good friend of ours is going to join us 
uh, as part of the announced team as well. Looking forward to it. Me too. All right, John, let's let's talk about some car news. We've got some some exciting stories to get to, starting with uh, we have confirmation from Jim Farley, CEO of Ford, who has tweeted that the seventh generation Mustang will be unveiled at the Detroit Auto Show on September 14th. Now, you and I speculated yeah. about this uh, a couple shows ago, and I will say uh, I had predicted that this would be unveiled in April to correspond with the anniversary of the right. Mustang. And it looks like uh, Dodge or uh, Ford is getting an early jump on that by showing it in in September, but I think what most enthusiasts and what most owners are, or potential owners are dialed into is actually the hashtag that he included, which was save the manuals. So it looks good that this all new Mustang will be coming with a manual transmission. Now, a lot of questions still surround the powertrain. What are your thoughts? Are you, do you have, are you optimistic that a V8 will be installed in this car? I am. I have just a, a, a strange feeling that a V8 is going to be part of the seventh gen Mustang reveal. And when I say that, you know, you begin to think of the different platforms and begin to think that the smallest platform engine that's become a legend now, the five liter Coyote engine, which has been around since 2011 with great success. I wonder if they'll use that engine due to the fact it's very modern and it's very efficient from a fuel economy and a low emission standpoint, or will they come up with a different V8 or maybe a smaller displacement version of that? I'm going to stick my neck out and predict that a conventional six-speed manual and the Coyote 5 liter will continue into the new Mustang. We're, we're not too far from you know, confirming that and getting that information, but if I had to stick my neck out, I would say that. And you just really got to give a shout-out to Ford for continuing to put so much effort into not the original pony car. That was the Plymouth Barracuda that actually debuted a couple weeks, fish car. Uh, but the the very long-running Ford Mustang has become such a part of automotive landscape. And it looks like it's going to be around for next generation. So I'm totally cool with that. Now, you are uh, a true enthusiast. You own a Mustang. I'm curious, are there any other features that you would like to see incorporated with this new design? Well, you know, manual transmission, V8 power, and keep the value to the point where a good performer, great looking performing car, fun to drive, feel good behind the wheel, all that stuff, uh, but yet at a price that people can afford. And I think Ford's probably aware of that. Okay. All right. Well, Ford also had some other news this week. They have pulled the wraps off the 2023 Maverick with a trimmer off-road package. Now, John, the Maverick is a truck that you and I, we like. We had the chance yes. to drive it together uh, not too long ago, long ago out on the West Coast. We really found it to be a very uh, accessible truck, a good price point. We liked it. And the trimmer off-road package now gives it a little bit of an edge for those that want more capability out of it. It comes with such things as a one-inch lift. You've got an off-road focused suspension. Uh, and then you've got some some neat design touches, some blacked-out accents, um, special 17-inch aluminum wheels with orange and dark gray analyzed finish, all-terrain tires. And then uh, that all that package costs just under $3,000. And then they also have a trimmer appearance package for an additional $1,495, which adds a gray painted roof and mirror caps and black graphics. So, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things, John, that the truck market continues to be red hot. And Ford certainly is all about offering up different levels for customers to come into at various price points. We saw this not too long ago with the Raptor R. I think Ford really understands having a wide range of options for customers and it's paying off. Absolutely. Right now, the top of the line would be their FX4, which will continue to be offered as well. But I think if you want, you know, that little bit of extra off-road capability and a little bit more sort of a macho 
uh, personality, it's a good way to go. It's available on two of the three trim levels. The base, of course, is the XL, not available on that, but the XL team mid-level, top-of-the-line Lariat will be available, uh, and it will not be available with the hybrid, hybrid powertrain. It'll be available with their turbocharged uh, two-liter engine with a conventional uh, transmission versus the hybrid's uh, CBT transmission. So I think it's a step in the right direction. You just have to wonder, Matt, you got to ask, wh- how's the competition going to react to this that either have similar trucks on the market or for those manufacturers that don't even yet have a compact truck? Is this market going to continue to you know grow and expand or is it going to kind of be just a couple of contenders? We'll keep an eye out for it. Yeah. All right, John. Well, as we wrap up, man, oh, man, the rumors have been flying about what is going on behind closed doors at our friends at Stellantis with right. Dodge and what they have planned for the next generation Charger Challenger platform, as well as what they have teased as the forthcoming e muscle car. What's kind of the latest and what's swirling out there? Wow, lots of buzz all over the place. No real hard information yet, but we are not too far from getting uh, our questions answered on all of that, Matt. First of all, there have been rumors flying that the next generation of Dodge Challenger and Charger is still going to be V8 powered. Dodge has come out officially and said that is not the case. So what we're thinking is 2023 will be the last year for the conventional lineup of V8 engines. Uh, that would be uh, power trains that would include the, let's say, the RT package, the SCAT pack, and then the variants of the different Hellcats. So my thought is, if you're interested in one of those, you want to kind of get on board with the last of the last, I think 2023 is going to be the last chance. But here's the biggest question of all, Matt, is where are they going to go into the future? And they're not making it exactly clear on that yet. They're definitely hinting and saying that electrification is going to be a big part of their future. They are also saying that they will be coming out with a full electric muscle car that we've known for quite a while but in the interim is there going to be a any type of a platform whether it be considered to be a muscle car or maybe just a you know regular passenger type car using their brand new what they call their hurricane platform inline three liter six cylinder engine pretty high tech double overhead cam four valves per cylinder uh turbocharged they're saying they've have a 400 horsepower version and a 500 horsepower version. I can see that added with some hybrid power, give some pretty impressive performance. I think that engine will probably also be used in the Ram series and in the Jeep series, maybe possibly on a full-size Chrysler as well. Don't know any of this yet, but I think some of these questions, Matt, are going to be answered sooner than later, maybe by the next podcast, (laughs) because you're going to be attending a pretty special event. Yeah, you and I have talked about how Dodge really has seen uh, has stayed committed to celebrating muscle and nowhere is that clearer than their involvement with what's what they're calling Dodge Speed Week. John, this is taking place in uh, up along Woodward Avenue uh, in just a couple weeks. It is a muscle car celebration and Dodge has promised that there will be a worldwide product debut, multiple of those kind of showcasing what the performance future is. So all of it kicks wow. off with uh, uh, with Roadkill Nights on Saturday. Uh, I should also note that the Mecha Mobile Experience and the Mecham Dodge Hellcat will be on site. So be sure to stop by and see that. And then later that week, as you said, uh, I've got access to three back-to-back-to-back product unveils or muscle announcements wow, that Dodge cool. has uh, said. So you and I have talked a lot about hmm. what are, what's going to be there. We don't know, but I can tell you, John, as soon as I find out, you'll be the first to know 
because you have mentioned that some of this might influence a shopping decision. You're kind of in the market for one of these bad boy muscle cars. Right. I have become so much of a fan of both the Challenger and the Charger platform, Matt, in a couple of different ways. Uh, thanks to folks at Avis and Dodge, I've had the great pleasure over the last five or six years to actually rent and drive a lot of these cars, particularly in the RT trim with what I call the small Hemi, the 5.7. And uh, my wife, Christine, and I have really, really been thinking about a Charger. And if this is going to be the end of the end of it, we'll have at least one more opportunity, the 2023 model year, to pick and choose. We like to order our cars and spec them out. Uh, could very well be the information that you bring back from that event that we'll be sharing on our next podcast could very well have a serious influence on the direction that I may go on my order. So I'm looking forward to it. Don't adjust that dial. On the Move, we'll be right back. Our program is proudly presented by Meekum Auctions, the world's largest collector car auctions. Now back to Matt and John. Well, Matt, you and I are at one of our favorite automotive places in the planet, the Shelby American facility in Las Vegas, Nevada. And a name that's known to, I think, the hardcore Shelby enthusiasts, but maybe not to the mainstream automotive public, although they should know this guy. Vince LaViolette is the VP of Operations Senior Designer and Chief Test Driver for Shelby American and is one of the most knowledgeable and passionate car guys that I know. We're going to kind of find out a little bit more about this guy who I kind of refer to as the mad scientist around the facility here at Shelby American. Uh, Vince, thanks so much for having us uh, to take some time on the podcast. Take us to the beginning. Where did you begin your lifelong pursuit of automotive passion? How did it start? You know, it's it's funny. Uh, my my whole family has been into racing my whole life. My dad's a motorcycle racer. Grandpa was a drag racer, and the other okay. one was a road racer. So I was pretty much from the beginning. I've been ruined from you know <laughs> day in one in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of kept into the uh, high performance department, you know, those kind of things. Uh, right out of high school, I was building performance motors for a boat company. Oh. And then uh, after that, I got into automotive and I wanted to uh, really kind of wean myself on everything, uh, starting out with, you know, body paint, chassis, um, you know, electrical, everything like that, building myself up. And then I finally got to a point where, uh, I got to be really good friends with a dealership uh, owner. I was running the body shop at the time, and he was running uh, Winston West NASCAR, and I got into NASCAR, and uh, he goes, I want you to come out and race with me, you know, and it was just one of those things that was easy for me, and we started into that, and uh, I've been kind of doing that my whole life, and then uh, uh, after I got out of the body shop business, uh, I opened my own uh, hot rod race car shops. And uh, I used to do, uh, you know, I do fender fabrication, metal fabrication, uh, aluminum, you know, all these kind of things. So what I didn't really realize is I was actually building myself up and weaning for this position yeah. that I had no idea that I would ever, ever, you know, work for a place, you know, like Shelby. So it, it, it was funny. Um, I had a friend of mine. Uh, I had had shops up north. I was up in northern Idaho for a while. And uh, he called me up and he says, hey, he says, I want to open a big body shop down here. He says, I'd like you to come down. And I says, well, I says, if I come down, I goes to shop down. He goes, oh, it'll be a couple months. I go, well, I'd like to get out of the snow. I'd like to come back down. I'm normally from Southern California, you know. And he goes, uh, I go, you know, I'd probably like to work a little bit before, you know, why everything's being built. And he says, you know what? He goes, I drive by the Shelby place every day. He says, I'll go grab an application. 
So I had no idea this was Carol's place, you know. So he sent me the application. And I look it up. And I'm going, oh man, this is this is the old man's place. <laughs> I want to send a good. So I sent on my resume. I did everything. All my my race car experience. My you know I got a shop building race cars. You know what I mean. All my fabrication, engine building, all that. I put everything on there. Uh, as soon as the letter hit here, uh, they called me. So anyway, they called me up and they says, yeah, Carol wants you to come down and like to talk to you. And uh, I came down and we talked and uh, that day he hired me and uh, it's just been magic ever since. I mean, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that you, you never thought would happen, and, but it did. What year was that? Uh, that was 20 years ago. Oh my. Yeah, 20 years ago. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget the, uh, the first day I came down. I told him it'd be a couple months for me to get my shop done and housing and all that kind of stuff. He goes, yeah, yeah, well, you better hurry up, son. So, <laughs> so anyway, I got down here. I'm standing with him in the shop. This is out at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. We had five shops out there. And, yeah, remember that. And I says, well, what would you like me to do? He says, well, he says, you're R&D. He says, uh, I need you to start building some stuff for me. I says, well, what area would you like me to work? He says, well, I got where we're standing here down to that door. I got four buildings across the street, and I got an engine shop down in California. They're all yours. He says, uh, he goes, let's let's start on some projects. So he gave me a, uh, he gave me his first project was to take a uh, 427 Cobra. That was, uh, you know, he goes, my, he goes, I got a problem. And I says, what's that? He goes, well, he goes, my guys are taking these things out on the weekends, and they're running them. And uh, he goes, they're starting to get beaten the straightaways. He goes, I got them in the corners, but they're starting to beat me. They got these new fancy motors and stuff. He goes, <laughs> I need to have something to where I can bolt on this car. He can get beat on Friday. He can go home on Saturday, put this in, and come back on Sunday and beat that guy. He says, but it's all going to fit under the hood, and I can't tell there's any modification to the car. He said, you think you can do that? Hmm. So I looked at it. I said, yeah, I can do that. So anyway, uh, I go, uh, can I use your machine shop? He goes, yeah, go ahead, use my machine shop. So I went ahead and got me a uh, Paxton-style supercharger, mounted it on the front of a 427, redesigned the box, redesigned the intakes, made it a package to where everything fit under the hood. You could actually put it on at about four and a half hours. Oh. Uh, yeah, we got about, uh, I probably increased it. Got rid of that little baby air cleaner that was on there, which gave me at least 50 horsepower, you know. So I probably increased it right around 90 horsepower. Okay. So anyway, uh, I got that all done. About two months, I got it all done. Brought it back. Had Carol take it for a ride. He went for a ride around the block. Comes back with his big old grin. Son, he says, we're building stuff. He says, <laughs> you know, and that was like, that was like one of the neatest things, you know what I mean, to have Carol Shelby actually give you you know, praise for what you did. Oh, and, and, you know, everything, every single thing you did for Carol was a test. That was the whole thing. I mean, because he had a lot of people would come in and they said, oh, I could do this, I could do that. And Carol's like, well, go ahead. You know, two months later, they're, they're, they're not around anymore. Right. You know, so you really had to, you really had to show him, you know, show him what you could do. And, and if he asked you to do something and you didn't think you could do it, you tell him, I can't do that. You know, and, and that's the way he was. And, and when I, you know, when, when I first met Carol, I decided that I was going to treat him like you and, you know, like, like all of us are sitting here talking. I never put him on a pedestal or anything like that. I always talked to him like we were friends or we were business partners or whatever, you know what I mean? And I think he really respected that uh, because 
so many people would come in and they would they would give him that you know oh mr shelby you know can i this and he didn't he didn't go for that he was a realist he was the kind of guy that really wanted to you know see the heart and soul of the person he's talking to interesting you know he did, he wasn't the guy that you know if you got fluff and stuff i i, I could care less about that well, and he wanted to see results, is what you're saying, where he wanted you to put your money where your mouth is exactly. and back it up that you can do what you said you could do. Exactly. And you proved it to him. with. So, uh, Vince, you've been basically project manager for every Shelby project going back to, I think you said the Series 1. Is that correct? Uh, series 1, I came in. Series 1 was already pretty much done okay. when I came in. Um, I got started on uh, Cobras. And then uh, we did Cobras, and then we started getting into the Mustangs. So I've been involved in every Mustang project since we, we got back into Mustangs. Now, does that involve strictly powertrain, or are you working in tandem with your exterior design group or your interior group, or are you over all of it and <laughs> driving it forward? I, I'm, 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 the, I'm the group. You're the group. <laughs> oh. I'm the group. The Vince Committee. No, yeah, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I have guys that help me, and and it's a, it's a team effort. Uh, you know, it takes everything, but... What my philosophy has always been when, when I'm doing design work, um, I want to put as much of the old car into the new car as possible. My goal is to have somebody that had an early uh, Shelby look at this car and relate to it. But I want the young guys to look at it and say, you know what, that's something I could drive. You know, so that's always been, that's always been the big thing. So I always, try to put, I always try to put vintage back into everything. Well, it... It's a, it's a difficult balance, like you said, where you do want to speak to the company's heritage, but you can't do that exclusively. Otherwise, you won't be drawing a new customer. So I imagine yeah. it is a challenge of how, do, how are you thinking to design the next feature classic? That's got to be a really difficult position to be in, but it seems like to date, you keep knocking out of the park like we've talked about. Right. Um, you know, Shelby is, is red hot in the collecting world. And also, not only from a collecting standpoint, but also from those new customers that we are seeing, even at Mecham Auctions, we're seeing younger buyers wanting to own a piece of modern Shelby history. And then they're drawn into the, the lore and the heritage and history. So, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it's kind of neat. Um, and, and like you say, every year we try to do something different. So when I'm building the car that were for that year, like, like this year, you know, we did the KR, I already know what I want to do next year. Oh, okay. I'm already, I'm already thinking of what I want to do. You know, I mean, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, you know, uh, uh, now we're into the uh, you know, electric cars, and it's, this, this is something that's, you know, really cool because now – who you know? There is no history with with, with Shelby. You know what I mean? As as far as as, as electric vehicles it's starting all over. Yeah. So I get to you know, we, we we look at it and we say okay. You know, me and Gary look at the car and we go okay. This is this is what we should do. But you know what? Let's put some heritage in it. So we put some heritage in it. But yet I can still step out and do things that are out of the box that people wouldn't normally do. You know, and 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 now this is the this is the platform where we start. This is the jumping off point, basically, so we can build from there. Well, let's just do a quick rundown of what what I guess I'm going to term traditional Shelby American products: uh, the continuation Cobras, uh, Mustangs, trucks. Those are really sort of the heart and soul of what makes the Shelby American uh, product line. But you mentioned electric. And Ford recently has come out with the Mustang Mach-E, controversial vehicle. Uh, it's their all-electric car. It's a four-door Mustang named car. Um, give us some highlights of your 
first of all, you becoming familiar with that car, and then when did you realize that this could very well be well-suited for the Shelby treatment? So we were, we were asked by Ford to, to look at it. We had already been looking oh. at, at different electric vehicles. Uh, me and Gary have been doing testing on another brand of vehicle <laughs> <laughs> because we wanted to get a feel for what was out there in the market. You know, so we put slicks on it, we take it to the track, we run it, you know what I mean? We see exactly what it's all about, how it handles everything like that. And then we went ahead and got the Mach-E. Now, on the Mach-E, we, we see the platform that we have, we know where everybody else is in the market. Now we can start working together to see, you know, exactly where we want to go. So the first thing we do is we go to Ford, we sat down with the engineers and we talked to them and said, what are, the, some, what are some of the things that we have to really look for or do if we're going to be a performance vehicle okay. in the electric market? So the, the first thing was, you know, well, we have, you know, we have temperatures. You know what I mean? You pull power out of a battery, it makes, it makes temperature. Okay. So the first thing we really thought of is how are we going to take and, and, and put more into a vehicle and be able to keep it cool? So that was the first thing. So we looked at it, you know, and, and we draw, you know, we draw back to where we're looking at the Series 1, you know, we're looking at the GT40, you know what I mean? These are, these are proven ways where they're actually pulling air from the bottom of the car coming out through the hood, you know. So we're going, you know what? That's that's our that's our heritage. That's our style. Let's 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 start with that. So that was your starting point. That was the starting okay. point. That was actually the first thing that me and Gary talked about while we were at at at, at uh, Ford. We said, you know what? This is this is something that would be really cool. And we're both looking at each other. Our eyes are up, or we're going. This is what we're doing. It'll you know, work, it'll work. <laughs> it'll work. You know, but, but making making something like that work is a little more than just saying we'll do that <laughs> well your track record is execution is your is your uh, is is your passion when when do you think that vehicle the shelby Mach-E, i don't know if you've got an official name for it yet when when would you guess that might be available for buyers probably in 23 okay good yeah. yeah so not too far away yeah so basically what we did right now is we started with style design and then uh, figured out what we need for cooling you know what I mean what how the shape is gonna look what we're gonna actually change on the car so we come up with a concept for that and then now we're starting with uh, suspension performance you know those kind of things so that's kind of the way we usually do we'll, we'll look at something so like for instance, you know, we'll step back a few years and we'll look at the wide body cars. Uh, we had we had uh, wide body uh, Mustangs. Wide body Mustangs. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so we we looked at those cars. You know, at the wide body, we, we started developing thousand horsepower cars. You know, how are we going to get this power to the ground? You know, so we figured out a tire and wheel combination we we're going to do a suspension combination we're going to do. Okay, now we got suspension. We can make this car handle. We can get the power to the ground. We have the powertrain. We have the motor for it. Now let's make a body that works. You know what I mean? So basically what I did is designed a body around what we'd already designed, you know what I mean, for the, the platform to make the car work. Yeah. So those are the, those are the kind of things we do. We don't... What, what a lot of people don't understand is we don't just take and grab a hood and put it on a car or, or do this or do that, you know, be, because it's readily available. No, our, our parts aren't readily available, and we design them as we go, you know. And, and it's I'm kind of an old school guy, so uh, I actually have a clay studio in the back, you know, and I'll, well, I'll build the car with clay or I'll build the car with foam. And, you know, the reason, we, the reason that we do that is – 
uh, what a lot of people don't understand when they're designing cars, they'll, they'll be out in the middle of the shop and they'll be doing wide fender flares and those kind of things like that. Well, the problem is, is we got fluorescent lights that are shooting angles from every angle, you oh, know what yeah. I mean? And you can't really make a car, you can make it look pretty good inside. You take the car outside and you go and you know what? It's missing something. It looks like added on parts and it looks like an aftermarket piece. Yeah. Well, inside the studio, I'm able to move the lights from one side to the other inside the studio, turn the lights off on one side. So I treat it like the sun. I treat it like one point of light. So all the designs I try to add, and I, I do it all in shadow. Hmm. So I work off the bottom line, the shadow line on the car. Now, when you put one of our cars outside and you look at our parts like our quarter panels, our front fenders, our hoods, and stuff like that, they look like factory pieces because we've designed them that way. You know, we, we do, you know, we do some design back and forth with CAD and everything like that, design the pieces. And you know what? Personally, I can tell everything that I designed in CAD, and I can tell everything I designed in the studio. You know what I mean? When, when we look at it collectively, it's like, it's nice, but it's not exactly, you know what I mean, what we were looking for. From beginning to end, uh, for our listeners, take us through your involvement of a Shelby product from the beginning right to the end. What are the steps that you directly are involved with? Uh, pretty much all of it. So take us through, we'll break down kind of the kind of a summary of what those various steps are from your idea in your mind till it's done and ready to go out to customers. Yeah, so what we'll do is we'll pretty much come up with a concept. So I'll sit down with the uh, uh, with my graphic guy. We'll sit down and we'll come up with a concept, a picture, you know what I mean, of what we really want to do, where we want to go with the vehicle, those kind of things. Um, once we get that done, then I pretty much I bring it around the shop and I show everything from the 16-year-old kids we got out here to the, oh. to the seven-year-old guys up front, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and we weigh it. You know what I mean? Do you like this? Well, that's okay, but I don't like the wheels. You know what I mean? Or, you know, that's really nice, but, you know, this, this. So we take all that information. We go back to the drawing board. We get kind of something that's, you know, where we want to go. And then the next step is to go ahead and go out and we'll, we'll uh, uh, make a prototype parts. So we'll get the prototype body done, get the hood done, get the quarters, fenders, whatever we're going to do. We get that all together. Okay, now we have a look that we're looking for. We have the components that we're looking for. We'll redesign the grills and everything like that, some of the intake components and stuff. Okay, we have all that. Now, in the meantime, why we're building all these things, where I'm keeping in the back of my mind that we're going to want to run coolers on this. You know, if the guys are going to race it, I'm going to need enough room for larger tires. Uh, I, I need to uh, direct the air over the front end if we're going to go wider, all these kind of things. So we're always thinking of those things as we're doing it, you know. So once I get, you know, once you get the body done, the pretty much design on the outside, okay, um, now what's our horsepower range? Mm -hmm. So now we, we work with, you know, we work with different uh, supercharger companies or we'll work, you know, turbos or what, whatever okay. we're doing, you know what I mean? We'll come up and we'll figure out what the range we want to be. We want to be in the 800 range. We want to be in the 850 range, we'll say, on this vehicle. So then we start developing and get, you know, get the horsepower going. We got the horsepower in it. Okay, now, are we going to stick with the suspension that we've already proven out that works on this car or do we want to go a little bit more? Okay. Well, like the, like the KR, we want to go a little bit more than what we normally had. So what do we do? We go all the way to Europe, and we find a company that has 
uh, spring, uh, spring company that's doing over and above what they're doing here in the United States. I grab those, we bring those down. Now we start working with that, that company and we start dialing in the suspension. Well, we find that we can actually reprogram the suspension on the cars, you know, electronically also now. So we go ahead, we bring another company in and we start working with them. Then we get everybody at the track together and then we have a track day, you know, a couple of days on the track and we can actually dial the suspension in. And then when we get it to where I'm happy with it, Gary's happy with it, then we call Billy Johnson, we bring Billy Johnson in from Ford. And we say, Billy, drive this car, what do you think? You know what I mean? And then we get his input. So wow. we, t- we take all of us, we put it all together. You know, Gary likes it this way, I like it this way, Billy likes it this way, but it has to be a car that somebody can drive on the street and be happy with. So we take all the extremes and we kind of triangulate them and bring them down into a center and this is where we're gonna go. I can drive the car comfortably with that, he can drive the car comfortably with that, he can drive the car. You know what I mean? So now we have a, now we have a good baseline, we have something that we can sell a consumer, that is that is a very comfortable car, but yet it still has all the all the suspension, all the all the components that you would need to be a race car, basically. What's a typical timeline from it's an idea in your mind until it's ready to go? Uh, Body wise, it takes me about uh, three weeks to a month. I can usually design a car in about three hours because wow. <laughs> I've already. But the, but the whole thing is, I've been here for so long. I'm already thinking about what I want to do. Yeah. Right. So when it's a new car that's going to come out. I got all this. I have a very visual mind. I take all that and I get it in my mind and I'm ready to go. Okay, now let's lay it down. You know what I mean? About three, four hours, we can lay it down exactly what we're going to you know, what we're going to do. And then the development time, you know, we're, we're going to have three or four months in development, you know, track time back and forth, you know, wheel tire packages, uh, the offsets, and we change the offsets, then we're going to go ahead and we're going to change the way the car handles. So there's a lot of different things, you know, that we work with. You know, is the exhaust adequate? Do we want to change the exhaust? Are we going three inch? Are we going two and three quarter? Are we doing two and a half? What are we doing? You know, these are the kind of things. So when we get the car out there, now, now we have a base car, okay? So we've got a car that handles good, that looks good, that the customer can drive. We go ahead and we put that in the box. This is, this is what we're building, okay? Now we take that car out and we go, okay, now let's make it work for us. You know what I mean? The over and above for the guy that wants to have the race car, the guy that wants to take it out only on the weekends and run it. That's when we start having fun. Now we start tweaking it, <laughs> tweaking the suspension more, tweaking the exhaust more, tweaking the suspension, you know, the, uh, the engine a little more to where we get a car that, hey, this, this thing really handles, this thing's fast. Is it safe to say, Vince, that <laughs> every day you wake up and you don't, uh, you're excited to go to work. Is, is that a fair statement? I'm guessing with, from the way you describe what you do, that's, that, that would be my reaction. I'm guessing that's your reaction. I'm bummed out to go home. You're <laughs> bummed out. <laughs> um, with as much driving as you do and as, with as much passion and as much fun as you have, um, when you're not driving officially on the clock, what are some of the vehicles that you have in your personal garage that you're getting some wheel time with? <laughs> um... I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I tell everybody I'm an old man on the street. Okay. I'm a race car driver at work, you know, so most of the stuff, you know, I mean, I drive Jeeps and, you know, and, you know, I, I do have some toys. I do have a, 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 you know, a Daytona coupe. So that's, uh, that's something that's fun, but that's something that you don't take out every day, those kind of things. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a car guy. 
I've got uh, I got everything from Jeeps, Chevrolets, Volkswagens, you know, uh, uh, Dodges. I've got I got everything. You got everything. I'm a car guy. I've got I think 23 cars right now. So, I, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a it's a it's a it's a passion, you know, and I I, I love it. I mean, I just. Every day here, like you say, you know, every day you wake up in the morning. We start at 4 in the morning, uh, and we work till 2.30 in the afternoon. We work four days a week. I'm here seven days a week. I'm just, uh, it's just, this is, you know, this is the life. And, uh, you know, the, the whole thing about Shelby is, you know, it, it's, it's a name. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's a history so every day that I'm out there, every day I have a shirt on that has Shelby on it, um, I want to be 110%, you know, meeting the people, talking to the people. You know, I'll walk through the, the Heritage Center here when I'm on my way somewhere and someone will ask me a question. I'll sit and talk to them for 15 minutes, you know, and, and somebody else will come up and go, do you know who that is? <laughs> you know, and I've never let that go to my head. I, I never, I, I'm never going to be like that ever. Everybody is my friend. You know, and, and that's what this company is about. We're a small company with a big name. Carol had a big heart. We're going to go ahead and we're going to carry that on. I always told them, I said, Carrie, Carol, I will always carry your legend on for you. You know what I mean? I says, I, I, every day I come to work, I'm going to do 110% to make sure that everything we put out is worthy of this company. Well, clearly you are, you're the right guy, Vince. Uh, right I, it, it's so evident that you, <laughs> Carol couldn't have found a better guy to do what you're doing. And thanks for giving John and I a behind the scenes look at how you guys are developing, how you're thinking, mm -hmm. how you're testing. And uh, we really appreciate the time and can't wait to see what other projects you guys have in store. We got some neat stuff coming. You've been listening to Meekin Presents On The Move, brought to you by State Farm. For more information, visit Meekin.com. And join us again next time as we take you inside the world of muscle and collector cars and more.